Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. My name is Gabrielle Hakoen, and I am here with my co-host. Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter. And we are back with another IFB semi-related true crime episode. Today we're covering something that got a lot of attention outside of the religious world. And I think a lot of people are vaguely aware that this crime is related to religion but we want to tell you about how this relates to the world inside the IFB. It's been a while since we've done one of these, I think. It's been... When was the what last was one the last did? one? Um, Combs episode? No, no, Kent Hovind. Remember, because of all yeah. the, the tax evasion and ambiguous bigamy. So we were planning on doing today's episode. I think we put it on our schedule about... It's been a while. It's been about five weeks since Two we... Two months ago. Yeah, Something since we like planned that, yeah. out... Uh, our episodes through the end of the yeah we planned out our episodes through the end of the year around the end of october and then about two weeks ago before recording someone posted in the facebook group like this would be a tough one to cover and i wouldn't blame sadie and gabrielle for not wanting to do this episode but it would be so cool if they covered andrea yates 
So that was really exciting to know that our listeners are, this is something you do want to hear from us and that you're ready to hear this one. Of course, if you're not familiar with the Andrea Yates case, I'm giving you the world's biggest trigger warning. This is on a level with the Combs episode um, as far as just being an extremely disturbing story. We are going to be talking about topics including but not limited to postpartum mental health issues, including postpartum psychosis, uh, suicide attempts, the eventual death of several children. This is a really rough one. So as always, take care of yourself. If you're going to listen, listen at a good time for you. Be in the right headspace. If this one isn't for you and you still want to support the show with your listens, you can always let the episode. What I do is I let the episode play on mute while I'm asleep. That's one option. I don't know. That still might give you nightmares. Okay, yeah, that's true. I mean, you can let the episode, you can let it play on mute anytime. We love when you listen to us, (laughs) but if you can't handle it, but you feel bad about, you know, letting a week go by without supporting or downloading the episode, that's what I would suggest. So before we decided to do this, I looked up Andrea Yates because I hadn't heard of her before. I don't know. I'm just not involved in this stuff. So I hadn't heard of her before. And Sadie was like, we need to do the episode on Andrea Yates. So I was like, okay, let me look her up. I read some articles about the story and Many of them mentioned vaguely that she was religious or that she was some sort of Christian, but nobody seemed to mention that the story was IFB related or or fundamentalism related. So that's exactly why I want to cover this one. I think that a lot of the media around this recognizes that she was religious, but people who write about this from the outside world don't understand what religion would treat Andrea Yates the way that her religion treated her. The first time I read the story, I immediately thought this has to be IFB, like actual mainline IFB. And I thought that it was. But as it turns out, this isn't technically an IFB story. It's just really, really weirdly IFB adjacent. And the reason that I want to cover it is that the experiences I had in the IFB give me insight into this. A lot of true crime podcasts have told the story before, and I don't tend to be excited about covering things that have already been covered. But I think that I have an inside track to understanding this. I have information about this type of religious philosophy that others wouldn't naturally have. And I think we can contextualize this story in a different way and from a different perspective. Before we get into that, the Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast. It is the story of Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism in general, the real and present threat that cult ideologies, uh, high pressure groups pose to society as a whole. So if you are a fan of this show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, which is going to be patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast, where we have extended and uncensored episodes of the show. Um, I think last week's episode, I think the runtime of the version that's out on streaming is like an hour and 47, but the runtime of the version that's on Patreon is like two hours and 20. So it's like a half an hour extra stuff. If you like hearing us just talk about stuff. I was really excited about that because I appreciate all of our patrons so much, but I want to make sure that we're giving them good stuff in return for sh- for supporting our show and i mean I good love the- is very subjective good is us we're good they like us i guess they do i don't know but i was excited to hear that we were able to give them that much bonus content last week 
if you like our show and you want to uh, join in discussion with other fans of the show, you can do one of two things. You can join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. You can join our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. And as always, the thing that helps us out the most is free to you to do. And you can just recommend our show to your friends and your family. And before we get into the episode, I just want to thank our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons. That's going to be Emery Fairlosser, Jessica Tambo, Kathleen Moncrief, Kristen Marie, Linda Morgan, uh, Ruthie, and uh, Wes the Cowboy. So uh, we love all of you. Thank you for joining that Patreon tier and being amazing. Thank you so much to all of our patrons who support our show. And a special thank you to our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons. Anyway, I think we'd better just uh, get right into it. So, Andrea Yates is a woman who lived in Houston, Texas, and in 2001, she was sentenced to 40 to life after admitting to drowning her five children. In 2006, she appealed her case on the grounds of false testimony by a witness and was granted a new trial and was found not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. She was then committed to a mental institution, but I take it that isn't the whole story. So what do you think if we start with the story that everyone knows and then we can later come back and add in the observations that I have about the story? That sounds perfect. So the story that everybody knows is that Andrea Kennedy, later Andrea Yates, was a pretty normal teenage girl and young woman growing up in Texas. According to friends who knew her when she was younger, she had some mental health struggles, but nothing that would be extremely unusual for a teenager. She did have depression and struggled with bulimia, but mm. but that's like that's a thing that teenage girls go through. It, they that doesn't mean it's not sad or that they don't need help, but that's a thing that a lot of teenagers face. No shame. Yeah, no no shame for you know things that lots of people have and people can get help for. So Andrea went to college in Houston and she became a nurse. She was working as a nurse at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center when she met Rusty Yates, who was an engineer. And Andrea and Rusty got married in 1993. Actually, they got married in April of 1993, which is interesting because that falls between my birth date and your birth date. Yes, I was born May 2nd, 1993. And I'm February 10th, 1993. It seems, interest- I, it seems interesting when we can put like a, a, such a hard and fast timeline on it because it's between, it's in that very short, like less than three months yeah. between when I was born and you were born. I don't know. It seemed interesting to me. So Rusty had been influenced by a preacher, Michael Warrenecki, who we're going to get into later. It's not clear whether it was Warrenecki's religious beliefs that influenced them to want to have as many children as possible, or if that was just what Rusty and Andrea wanted from the beginning of their marriage. But that's sort of a thing that you talk about before you get married, right? Yes. Like, do you want children? If so, how many? If you were thinking about getting married to a guy and he said, I want to have as many children as possible, uh, my wife will spend the next 20 years of her life pregnant. And that's not what you want. That's probably going to be a deal breaker. Yes. Jonathan and I most definitely discussed when to have children and how many children we would like to have before we got married. And I'm not against large families at all. I think that the person who's going to be giving birth needs time between pregnancies to recover. It's for their safety. It's for the safety of future pregnancies. I do think that people can have too many children to the point that they can't take care of all the kids that they have the way that the kids deserve. Uh, but I don't think that that's a number. It's not, oh, well, six is fine and seven is too many. It's it, it's based on your family and 
the personalities of the people in your family and how many adults are available and so on and so forth. If you've got the money and you've got the time and you've got the ability, there's nothing wrong with having a bunch of kids. It seems to me that Rusty and Andrea were initially in agreement on this, that it was a a mutual thing. They didn't want to prevent pregnancy and they would like to have pretty much back-to-back pregnancies. So between 1994 and 2000, it's what? Baby roughly ever every like 18 months or so? So I've got their birth dates from Andrea's Wikipedia article. The first child was Noah Jacob, born February 26th, 1994. And then you have John Samuel, December 15th, 1995. So that's 22 months between the first two births. Paul Abraham, born September 13th, 1997. So 21 months between Luke David, born February 15th, 1999. So that's 17 months. And then Mary Deborah, born November 30th, 2000. So 20 months between the last two. But that's not wall to wall like Jim, Bob and Michelle. No, this is still a bit faster than is medically recommended now. But this is not bad compared to anyone with the last name of Duggar. Having just had a baby, my doctors recommended 18 months between the birth of one baby and the conception of the next baby. So that would be 27 to 28 months minimum between births. But having a full year after a birth before getting pregnant again, especially if you didn't have any C-sections, in Fundy world, that's extremely reasonable. And Andrea would have had a full year not pregnant between all of her children except for between the last two. Yeah, and also this was in the 1990s. So the stuff you're hearing now from your doctors, that isn't what they would have been telling like Andrea back then, I don't think. Probably not. Yeah, like any family where the kids are two years apart wouldn't be following that medical advice. And like there's a lot of kids, you know, that we know, a lot of families that I know growing up that had uh, kids like two years apart. That's not that weird. Yeah, my brothers are two years apart. No. Almost exactly. So having five births in six years... That is definitely a lot. My completely non-medical, non-expert opinion is that some people's bodies just handle that better than others. Personally, for myself, I I hope that I never experience being pregnant with four kids under six. Um, Just for myself, that's not an experience I'm interested in trying. Andrea was was understandably pretty overwhelmed uh, throughout the late 90s and early (laughs) and into 2000 with all of this. It's like playing on expert mode. Yeah. Um. Again, this is. No, I don't want to 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 judge other people specifically, but I will categorically state that I'm not interested in trying this unless I, uh, unless I happen to get pregnant with quadruplets, in you know two years from now. I I hope to never experience this. You get pregnant with quadruplets, it's like let me get my tubes tied now. You know, just. I mean, that would be the convenient <laughs> thing. You could just be. I could just be done. Anyway. Yeah. Andrea was especially overwhelmed because Rusty had some ideas about where they should live. So they originally bought a nice house in Texas, but then Rusty got a job in Florida and he decided that he needed they want that he wanted the family to live in a trailer. The decision to live in a trailer was influenced by Warren Warnecke, who preached a minimalist lifestyle in addition to more standard Christian teachings that he preached. How do you even fit five children in the trailer? So it was just two toddlers and pregnant with the third when they moved into the trailer. I, I mean, I there was Still. there were three three children and two adults living in a double white in my family growing up. So it's not that it's not that bad. Uh, I knew I, a, I knew a family. I said I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't do it again willingly. <laughs> Absolutely not. I would. I 
would not ever want to have a whole family sharing one bathroom again. I feel like that's just a lot, especially when the kids are old enough to need to shower every day. That's that's five showers a day in one bathroom. The scheduling gets a bit much, um, but it's it's not it's not hell on earth. It's doable. I knew a family who had six children and lived in a motorhome for years while on deputation to be missionaries. Um, some of those kids listen to the podcast. So hi, friends. <laughs> um, Jill Rodriguez has 13 kids and they all lived in a motorhome for a long time. So. Okay. This is, I mean, this is five children under six years old and they're living in a trailer. This is, this sounds like utter chaos. Well, that was, that was just like toddlers and a baby. It didn't get better, though, because they moved back to Houston a few years later, and when they moved back to Houston, they didn't move into a house. They moved into a school bus that had been renovated into a motorhome. So I want... So the third... No, the fourth child, I think, was born, and they had two toddlers, a baby, and a newborn in a bus with about 235 square feet of living space. That's like... What in Homer Simpson is this man <laughs> thinking of moving his family into a goddamn school bus? That is a very Homer move. It is such a Homer move. That I why is every funding man Homer Simpson now is what I would like I to know. know. Like uh, except for the beer. Except for the beer. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. So this preacher, Warren so this guy Warren Eckie, he's the one that's like preaching this lifestyle. Yeah. Does he, he like he was never in a position of authority over the Yates family, he was in a position of a lot of influence over them. So what kind of house does he live in? Also, okay, he actually also lived in a motorhome. So the Waranecki family lived in the bus that was converted to a motorhome, and then they sold that bus to Rusty Yates so the Yates family could move into it, and they moved into another bus that had been converted into a motorhome. Mm. So how many kids did he have? Six. I, I don't like this preacher at all, but at least in this area, he was walking the walk as well as talking the talk. So the third child, so she was, yeah, it was actually just two toddlers and pregnant in Florida. And then the third child was born while they were living in the bus. And so was the fourth, Luke. So Paul and Luke were born at the time they were living in the bus. And then Andrea had severe postpartum depression after the birth of Luke, her fourth child. Were they born in the bus or did they go to the hospital? You know, I don't know. I was able to find out that Andrea had all five of her eventual children without any pain medication because she had a religious belief influenced by Warnecki that childbirth is supposed to be a painful, humbling experience for women. I was not able to find out if she had home births or not, which makes me think that she had birthing center or hospital births, but I wasn't able to get any solid information on that. Which makes me think she probably went to a birthing center or a hospital. When they moved back to Houston, it was for Rusty's job because he had been hired for his dream job at NASA. He was so hyped about this job at NASA and he spent a lot of time at work. And this is one of two reasons that Andrea didn't have a lot of help around the house. You mean the bus? Right. Help around the bus. The other reason that she didn't have a lot of help was Rusty's religious beliefs. I didn't find a really clear indication online, but I very much get the impression that he got more and more severe about his beliefs as time went on. I can't know what goes on in someone else's marriage or someone else's mind for that matter, but it seems like he became more of the enforcer and made stricter and stricter rules and had higher and higher expectations over time. Why do you think this is? 
Because like it seems to me that a lot of these fundamentalists get more and more austere as time goes by. This is a pattern that I do see a lot among fundies and fundy adjacent people. Is it like a reaction to something? Do you think that they're seeing society get more and more sinful and then they feel like they have to work harder in their personal lives to be more and more separate from it? That's exactly what I think it is. The message that they hear and the message that Wuraneki was preaching was that the world is getting worse and worse. The devil is everywhere and he wants to get you. The devil gets more sneaky all the time. And the way to fight against that is to be vigilant and always to re-examine ways that the devil might be sneaking in and causing you to sin. Like Heather said, uh, with needing to do spiritual cleanses of her home and needing to do heart checks, if you were tripping up on a sin, then you had to search and search and search and find out where the devil had snuck into your life. What I experienced was the concept of if you're not growing, you're dying, which is a very typical and not untruthful inspirational speaking type thing to say. But if you apply it to fundamentalism, it becomes if you're not getting stricter, you're backsliding. Mm, I see. No, it's uh, if you're not part of the solution, then you're part of the problem, but applied to your life. Yeah. I don't know. I think that I think that teaching is really, really toxic because people need time. Like even if you grow a bunch, you need time to like rest. Yeah. And like recompartmentalize your life and like relax. It can't just be like constantly growing or you won't have time to. I would disagree with how you phrase that because I would just say that rest is a part of growth. The, uh, hmm. Rest is part of the growth cycle. Uh, you know, you, you're a gym guy who enjoys lifting weights. Part of building muscle is resting after you've done work. You don't. Yes. You don't build muscle as well as you want to if you don't rest. That's true. So whatever whatever way you say it, saying something like if you're not growing, you're dying, or if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem, that isn't necessarily a bad thing to say or think as motivational phrases. But when you apply them to your standards, the rules that fundamentalist people live by, it does get very toxic very fast. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it, it can be really black and white thinking, very binary thinking that I think is pretty toxic. That's just my opinion on that. But well, you're notoriously very against uh, black and white thinking. Usually, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you. Oh, look, we got one joke into this episode. Yeah, we did. Um, Pat yourself on the back. Let's let's move along with the dark stuff. If I hear somebody say something like that, I usually think this is not a person to be taken seriously about anything. That's fair. So Rusty had this preacher in his ear. And he was becoming more and more about patriarchy and gender roles to the point that a friend of Andrea's testified that if he was with the children and a kid needed their face wiped or their hands wiped clean, he would, instead of doing it, he would tell them to go find their mother to do it. This man would not even wipe his own kid's face because of gender roles. Jesus. Yeah. Rusty was also pushing Andrea to start homeschooling their kids. A belief that he was hearing from Waraneki was that isolation is good for women and children. Public schools are evil, and you need to start homeschooling very young to get your kids indoctrinated early. And I'll, I'll give you some quotes from Waraneki on that in the back half of the episode. But keep that in your mind for now. So imagine being in her shoes, living in a bus with three toddlers and a newborn, no help from your husband, being pressured to homeschool. And then you get hit with postpartum depression from the birth of the fourth kid. It is, it is not at all surprising that Andrea had a nervous breakdown when the fourth kid was about four months old. 
that is extreme by any sense of the word though it it is like this is there are extreme beliefs going on here but that's just one factor because this is also an extreme method of living like extreme beliefs are one thing but also she's in an extreme situation that poor woman her living space was like the size of the closet that i record our podcast in god yeah um so in july of 1999 Andrea had a nervous breakdown and attempted suicide for the first time. She was hospitalized and put on heavy mental health medication, specifically Haldol, after she was diagnosed in the hospital with postpartum psychosis. That's the heavy stuff. Yeah. That's, yeah, they don't break that out every day. Yeah. So while Andrea was in the hospital, Rusty was going house shopping. He realized that she needed to be out of the bus for her mental health, which you would think would be a good thing that he finally got this through his head? You would think. While he was house shopping, he insisted on finding a house that would have a place for homeschooling. He apparently had the tiniest kernel of concern for his wife. Like, I, it, the fact that she attempted suicide and was hospitalized um, and diagnosed with a very serious postpartum mood disorder is enough to get it through his head that he should not have this poor woman living in a bus, but he was still committed to forcing her to homeschool. His wife is in the hospital after attempting suicide due to her being completely overwhelmed with everything in her life. And this man is still insisting that she's homeschooling her children. That's nuts. Couldn't they send their kids to like an ACE school like like you went to? No, because an ACE is headquartered in, in Texas. Um, it's headquartered in Dallas. They could have probably sent their kids to like a gold star uh, ACE school. But it's yeah. Warrenecki's teaching. That private Christian school is not good enough. It must be homeschool. And that isolation specifically is good for women and children because they don't get any bad ideas in their heads. So this is one place where Rusty Yates shows the smallest amount of actual concern for his wife. And even in doing that, he doesn't go so far as to take any burden off of his wife. And, you know, this minimalism thing it's not just that they were poor. It's religiously motivated. This man works for NASA. He can f-ing afford a house. Yeah. Do you think that the doctors of the hospital pulled Rusty aside and said, your wife is losing her mind here. You work for NASA. You can afford to buy a f-ing house and stop making her raise four kids in a goddamn school bus. And then Rusty says, fine, I'll buy a house. But she has to homeschool the kids. I'm putting my foot down like this guy. Yes, actually, we do know that this happened because the doctors put it in their notes that they had pretty much that exact conversation with him. And he was. Wait, actually. And uh, like, so the, the psychiatrist talked to Rusty and told him, your wife has postpartum psychosis. This is extremely serious. You need to step up and help your wife or this is going to end very, very badly. And Rusty's response was, well, the wife needs to submit to the husband. He quoted scripture about wives submitting to husbands back to them. I do think that we should note before we go any further in this story that postpartum mental health issues and postpartum mood disorders are an extremely real thing and also extremely common. I have seen several different sources online, like TV commercials, that about one in eight people who give birth experience either postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety. Postpartum psychosis is a lot more rare Um, I asked my doctor about this when I was pregnant, and she told me that it's about one in 200. That's still a lot of people. Yes. How many babies are born every year? Oh, I I looked this up not long ago, but I cannot remember off the top of my head. I think it's around 2.4 million. Hang on. Let let me look it up. 
I want to get this right. Oh, I was wrong. 3.6 million babies in 2020. So what's 3.6 million divided by 200? 18,000. 18,000. That's that's 18,000 people every year postpartum psychosis. That's a lot of people. Yes. And it can be more or less uh, life-threatening for people. And a lot of that depends on whether they have access to care. That's like a basketball stadium full of people. Yes. That's a lot of people. So the best solution to this is to make mental health resources extremely accessible to people who give birth. Because a lot from what I have read about this disorder, a lot of people are very much able to realize something is very wrong here. And if they have a specialist, a phone call away that they can reach out to, many people reach out, get help and have no adverse effects on their life a few months later. I'm glad that we got another one of your soapboxes in. Oh, good. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, Dinah's playing bingo. Can't, di- she... can't disappoint Dinah. Okay. <laughs> I love you, Dinah. Yeah, we, we love you, Dinah, so much. After another suicide attempt the same summer, uh, so Andrea got released from the hospital, made another suicide attempt shortly after. While Rusty was driving her to the mental hospital where she was going to go inpatient for a while, he said that all people need, all people with depression need is a swift kick in the pants to get their life together. Not helpful, by the way. Obviously, Rusty has some serious mental health issues that remain unaddressed. If you ever happen to be the non-birthing partner of a birthing person who is having postpartum mental health issues, I can give you a list of things not to say, and that is number one on the list. So it was at this time that Andrea's psychiatrist told Rusty and Andrea in very clear terms that they should not have any more children because it would practically guarantee another round of postpartum psychosis. Of course, if you're using the logic of a man like Rusty Yates, it's she can't be postpartum if she's prepartum. Better get her pregnant again, checkmate. You know what this man reminds me of? A dog turd that you have to scrape off your shoe with a stick. Yes, but also... Have you ever had a maybe a partner, maybe a friend, if you commit to something, they're going to hold you to it regardless of whether the circumstance changed? I'm going to make up an example because I don't want to trigger myself and share a real one. But if you said, um, I will wash the dishes after I get home from work, then your partner would not even consider washing the dishes for you because you said you would. But not only that, if you end up having a really hard day at work and you've got to stay over an hour late you, and you come home and you're dead tired, your partner is still going to hold you to washing the dishes because you said you would. Or I don't know, maybe a friend that you promise him you'll hang out. But if something comes up that is 100% legitimate and you're not just flaking on them, but you've actually got a, you've got something that you actually have to do, they will still pressure you to come hang out because you said you would. So people who refuse to believe that you can change your mind or that legitimate things can come up that can change casual commitments that you made, that's what I'm talking about. I think Rusty and Andrea, by all accounts, did agree at the beginning of their marriage that they would like to not prevent pregnancy and have as many kids as possible. But number one, she did not make that commitment thinking they'd be living in a bus. She made that commitment thinking they'd be living in the house that they bought. Number two, this extremely valid medical reason came up that she should not have more children. But Rusty is going, what I imagine is going on in this marriage is he's going, but you said you'd have as many kids as possible and not prevent pregnancy. You said it, so now you got to do it. When you say you're going to do something, you stick to it or your word isn't worth anything. 
Yeah, and I think that's super, super toxic. Of course, I think that we should do our best to be people of our word. I really try to keep to that as much as possible. I think you should do what you say you're going to do. But this black and white thing is so, so selfish, especially if I'm right about what I envision going on in this marriage. Especially it's not Rusty's body. Rusty doesn't have to like. Right. He doesn't have to push out the fucking baby. He doesn't have to like get huge and not be able to go 10 minutes without peeing and, and have all his like, hair fall out after he has the baby yeah yeah i had i had tennis ball size clumps of hair fall out for months and it's just now stopping knock on wood been there yeah no actually i felt very <laughs> supported by you during this yeah. i really did so my point though is that rusty is keeping her to a commitment that she made but the circumstances have changed so he feels like he can just not hold up his end of the deal like not give her a house to raise all these kids in but still expect her to do her end of the deal that's what i see i think it's i just think it's really selfish on one hand i like when somebody cancels plans on me i take it really personal i absolutely hate how easy that's become but like this is this is not at that level this isn't at like the you said you do the dishes so you got to do the dishes this is at like a like this is this is so far beyond that. Yeah, I think it's the same vibe though. The consequences of this decision are so much greater than that. Yeah, and I think that if somebody cancels on you because they're flaking, I think it's reasonable to feel hurt by it. And taking things personally is something that I think all of us have to work through and figure out how we're going to cope with that feeling. But what you're not going to do, even if somebody flakes on you for no reason, much less a good reason, you are not going to try to emotionally manipulate them into showing up anyway. No. Like, honestly, if you cancel on somebody, it, it's uh, it's a great way to look for red flags because people who are manipulative are going to immediately get manipulative. And then you know what kind of person you're dealing with. Yeah. Like, if you cancel on me, though, like, you have a baby. So that's different because. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> No, I think I think what I'm saying, though, being hurt or feeling bad is totally valid. Um, But trying to guilt trip or manipulate or force somebody into doing what they said they were going to do, even though they've now said they can't. That's a red flag. Rusty Yates seems like an absolute piece of work here. I do like. So it was around this time in 1999 when Andrea's friend, Deborah Holmes, started keeping a journal of her interactions with Andrea. Deborah had been friends with Andrea when they were nurses together at the cancer center. And bless Deborah's heart because she stuck with her friend as she got sucked into all of this religious stuff and had a bunch of kids back to back. Deborah really tried to help her and to save her life. Deborah remembers Andrea saying that she was trying to avoid having sex with Rusty because she was afraid she would get pregnant again. But Rusty, again with the manipulation, praised her maternal instincts and flattered her and convinced her to have sex with him. And she got pregnant seven weeks after being released from the hospital from her second suicide attempt. This legit, this legitimately, maybe this makes me so angry. Yeah. This, this man has zero concern for anybody but himself. He's just had like the biggest shock of his life. You would think. Right? Like if you had a partner who, who was like literally suicidal. You would be just like, I do not want to do anything. I that, mean, she like, was suicidal, but she 
tried to commit suicide in front of him. Not oh like, my God. not like, hey, babe, I'm feeling really rough. I'm going to go check myself in someplace or like, uh, or like, honey, I don't think I can do this. I'm going to call the suicide hotline or like, honey, will you please drive me to my therapist right now? Not that. She attempted to kill herself in like in front of him. And he had to remove the implement with which she was trying to kill herself oh from her hand. God. Twice. And he's just. Yeah, that's the level. If he if he cares about her at all, this has got to be horribly traumatic for him as well. Yeah. And he's got to be like, if if that happens to you, like, and you really love your partner, like, I, I don't want to say like, you're not going to do anything that's going to make them ma- like unhappy, like, but you're going to be like thinking specific, like the only thing that's going to be going through your mind for the next however long is going to be how, like, how do I, how do I keep my partner safe? What do I need to do to allow them to rebuild themselves again? Yes. How do I keep them happy? How do I like do anything that isn't going to like short term immediately? Yeah. Like the healthiest possible response to that is I can't walk on eggshells forever, but if I need to walk on eggshells for six months while I give this person all the resources that they need to heal and help them fix themselves, that's what I'm going to do. You would think. Uh, Not... uh, well, I just got to have sex right now. And if my wife, who is guaranteed to have postpartum psychosis again, gets pregnant, oh, well, I got to have sex. I mean, if he's got to have like he could they could at least like do something. You know, There are not, so many options. But he right? chose none of them because you said you were like, oh, my God, but this is this is this, this is the worst. This is the worst. It's the literal worst. So. Andrea, during her last pregnancy, she actually seemed to be pretty stabilized, which I think shows how all of the, the extent of her problems was really caused by hormonal issues, like postpartum hormonal issues. She stabilized through late 1999 and 2000, and she gave birth to her youngest child in November of 2000. She was doing well with homeschooling. After she was in and out of the hospital, summer 1999, she got pregnant and then she had her baby in late 2000. She was being a super mom. She was making cookies and sewing for her friend's kids. And she, for a while, she seemed to really be back in her groove. But she was guaranteed to get postpartum psychosis again. That's what the doctor said. Well, yeah. Well, you remember four months after her son Luke was born was when she hit her worst time the first time. Well, four months after Mary was born, her father died. So now she's dealing with being right at that time period where her hormones crashed or whatever caused her postpartum psychosis the first time. And then she also had the death of her father to deal with. So she was understandably really struggling. According to Deborah Holmes' journals from the time, Andrea stopped taking her psych meds, she stopped eating, stopped bathing, and she became so emaciated that she could no longer breastfeed her daughter. Deborah says that she was calling Rusty telling him that something was seriously wrong. Like, hey, man, your wife needs major help right now. And Rusty would give her some bullshit, like, well, I'll look into it. And Deborah would tell him, she's not going she's not going to make it through the weekend without killing herself. You need to do something right now. Rusty, according to Deborah, was apparently frustrated with the amount of time that this was causing him to miss work. And he doesn't realize that he's doing something wrong. Like his wife is rail thin and he hasn't showered and he's annoyed. 
about missing work. Yeah, like he 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 knows that something's oh. wrong with her, but he just wants her to get her shit together because he's this is messing with his dream job at NASA. F-ing asshole. This is a man who chooses to go by the name Rusty and he isn't a cowboy and he thinks it makes sense to have four kids and live in a school bus. I mean, Rusty might be his given first name, but yeah, he's a jerk. No, I looked it up. It's Russell. Really? Oh my God. So surprisingly, here's a twist. This is where Wurenecki might not be the ultimate bad guy here. Well, who's more foolish, the fool or the fool who follows him? Wurenecki reportedly told Rusty Yates that he was at risk of sacrificing his wife and children on the altar of his job, which turned out to be more accurate than Warnecki could ever have known. The exact quote from Warnecki writing about this later was, quote, he was in love with working for NASA more than he was in love with his wife. The two men had a falling out about this and stopped talking. Warnecki is the guy who got him into this in the first place. Yeah. And so he can't even get Rusty to pull back. Right. And I think that that's an important point to make. Deborah, Andrea's friend, said basically Rusty takes care of Rusty. She categorized it as possibly one of the people closest to this situation. She categorized it less as Rusty being cruel or evil and more as Rusty just being his own number one. Just his goals, his plans, his dreams were the main thing. This is a man who is literally allergic to washing a dish ever in his life. Yeah. It seems to me that Rusty did wake up and try at least a tiny bit of effort right at the end, but it was just too little too late. Rusty did one more, like, less terrible thing in the spring of 2001 when he and Andrea's brother had to actually physically force her into a car to be hospitalized again. Because she had not only stopped eating, but she had stopped feeding her baby. Not just that she wasn't able to physically feed her anymore, but that she had stopped like giving her formula or feeding her at all. Mm-hmm. So Rusty forced her to be hospitalized, which was the right thing to do in the spring of 2001. And then he took Andrea to meet with the psychiatrist after she was released. And at least according to Rusty, he did try to get more help from the psychiatrist. So the doctor was telling him... Andrea's fine. And then Rusty was telling the doctor, no, she's not fine. Wait, so the doctor was saying she was fine? Yeah, like two days before what happened happened. uh, The doctor was saying she's okay. And Rusty was like, no, she needs to go back in the hospital. But then after that intense conflict with the doctor, Rusty turns right around and goes back to doing less than the bare minimum. So nobody's telling him, you need to take time off work, help your wife raise your children because she's literally dying. See, okay. I find that so hard to believe. So here's the thing. The last time she saw a doctor, last time Andrea saw a doctor before what happened, the doctor said she's fine. She does not need to be hospitalized. She just needs 24-7 supervision at home. She's not a capable parent. Don't leave her with the children. And Rusty was like, no, she's got to be hospitalized again because he didn't want to deal with being her 24-hour caregiver. Oh, okay. So it's just laziness on his part. He doesn't want to deal with it. He's just like, let me, I'm going to like, I'm going to take my car to the repair shop instead of fixing it myself. That's that's what I got from the article that I read. Uh, A lot of this really in-depth information in this part is coming from the Time Magazine article that's linked in my sources. It's the most in-depth thing I was able to get my hands on. So, yeah, it was it was 
it, the fight was between Rusty's like she needs more medication or she needs she needs to be medicated to the point of sedation or she needs to be hospitalized. Um, and the doctor saying, no, we're still working on her meds, but she just needs supervision. So after that conflict, two days later, on the morning of June 20th, 2001, Rusty was rushing off to a big space shuttle design meeting at work, and he didn't want to wait. His mother was supposed to show up an hour later to take over supervising Andrea and the kids. So Rusty and his mother had this, like, on and off, like, system for managing Andrea. She would come over when Rusty left for work, and then Rusty would come home in the evening and his mother would go back home. But Rusty had decided, in Rusty's infinite wisdom that Andrea should be purposely left alone with the children for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening each day against the doctor's recommendations. So he would purposely tell his mother to come over an hour after he left for work and to Wait. leave an hour before he came home. Why? Because he thought that she was getting too dependent and that she needed to learn to oh do it on her God. own. So on the morning of June 20th, uh, Rusty had a habit of taking one of his children to one of his boys, the older children, to work with him now and then just like, as a special treat because there was a place where NASA employees' kids could spend the day at his workplace. And it was supposed to be John, one of one of his boys' days, to go to work with him. And he asked Rusty to take him, but Rusty didn't have the patience for it because he had to go to his big space shuttle design meeting. And he said no. So immediately after Rusty left on that morning, Andrea filled up the bathtub and systematically drowned each one of her five children. It's just like, geez, just like one after the other. Yep. Yeah. So Paul first, who was three, then Luke, who was two, John, who was five, then the baby, Mary, and then finally Noah, who was seven and would be one year younger than us if he had lived. Like, did the kids know? Uh, she took them one at a time into the bathroom, and then she, once they were dead, she took them out of the bathtub and put them in her bed one at a time. The first three boys to be killed did not know what was going on until it was too late. And then the baby, obviously, when the baby was, I think, six months old and would not have, have had any awareness of what was going on. So fortunately, the the youngest the youngest three kids probably suffered minimally. Because they were too young to comprehend. The older two boys probably suffered quite a bit. She left the baby in the water, in the bathtub, floating face down, while she went to get her oldest kid. And the oldest kid saw the baby in the bath and knew that something was up and put up a fight. And almost got away. Ran throughout the house. Um, Andrea caught him and drowned him as well. Oh my god, that's so disturbing. Yeah. So she called 911 to tell them what she had done and ask them to send an officer. And then she called her husband to tell him to come home. Jesus Christ. This is. So the, here's here's another little weird thing. I only found this in one source. So it's not uh, really solid, solidly confirmed. But reportedly, Rusty asked her which one of the children she had killed when she called him to tell him to come home. And then she said all of them. And that swings me back towards seeing Rusty as one of the villains of this story because it makes it seem like he knew that she was likely to do something like this. 
Wait, so she she hold on. So she called him and then he asked her which of the children she killed. Yes, she called him and she said it's time. And it's time. It's time. And that was enough for him to know that she had hurt or killed one of the children. So they talked about this before. He claims that he never heard her specifically talk about killing the children. But how did he know? I don't know. How did he know what that meant? That's the mystery. I think it's plausible that maybe he had some kind of instinct or he knew by the tone of her voice or he knew something was up because there was no background noise in a house that should have been full of children. I, it's plausible, but I'm not sure if I think it's likely or not. But if she said it's time, he must have like that must have been referring to something that they'd spoken about previously. Like, so she said it's time this... and he said which one. I think it's I think it's suspicious. Suspicious is putting it lightly. That's I mean, that sounds like he was in on it to begin. like if somebody calls me up and is like, it's time, you know, like that's that's like secret agent like soviet sleeper agent shit where it's like okay time to wake up and have me kill the president like yeah that's fair that yeah or at least something that she'd said to him about that before like in maybe like a fit of rage or a fit of psychosis but he just was you know only looking out for rusty and he didn't feel like dealing with it so he's just like i'm just gonna ignore that and pretend that's not he's real. just gonna pretend he didn't hear it maybe Yes. So, but he knew. I mean, that sounds plausible to me. I do, I don't know. This is this is one that I'm not. I don't feel confident enough to speculate about. But I will 100% say that it's suspicious. I 100% feel like I am confident enough to say that this guy knew. But like, it's time. Which one? Come on. Like, so how? Do, like, how does he say he had no idea? Right. The doctors told him, do not leave the, do not leave her alone with the children. He's like, I'm going to leave her alone with the children. And he was like, no, I know better. She needs an hour. She needs two hours a day to figure her shit out. She needs to pull herself up by her bootstraps. She needs to learn some independent doctors like, no, do not do that. That's a bad idea. No, she's on 24 hour watch. Do not leave her alone. Not 22 hour watch. And, and Rusty was just like, no, I know better than the doctors. So. Let's go take up the offering. I feel like we really need a break. When we come back, uh, we can talk about what I see from my perspective, why Rusty might have behaved that way. We can also talk about uh, her two trials and the results of that. That sounds good. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We are back. We are talking about Andrea Yates and her quintuple homicide of her own children. Yeah, that's as nasty as it sounds. We're talking about her husband, Rusty Yates, who seems like an utterly contemptible and useless man. At the start of this episode, Sadie, you mentioned that there were a few details of this case that specifically clued you into the fact that this was IFB related. So I did some pretty deep research. And what I found out is that the Yates weren't specifically IFB. And one of the reasons that you can't specifically say that they're IFB is because they didn't attend a church at all. They had home church, and they had communications from Warnecke. And I really thought, surely this guy Warnecke is IFB. But I, I dug into where he went to seminary and what his background was, and turns out he actually wasn't. But that being said, there could not be, there could not possibly be more overlap between the IFB and IFB teachings and the facts of the Yates case. So what specifically are we teachings? So some of the things that clued me into the general bent of Christianity that these people were practicing, which I'm sure some of our listeners also caught, were the Yates not wanting to prevent pregnancy, them being quiverful, Rusty's patriarchal views, the treatment of mental health as not being real or valid. I think those are those stick out to a lot of people. Those are all things that we've talked about before. Right. We've covered all of those things. There's also the factor that Andrea Yates told police that she killed her children because they had demons inside them and she thought that they were going to grow grow up wrong. So all of these things are contributing factors, but like this is an entirely preventable horror. Yes. And I think those are the things that other people saw. Even the media seemed to recognize those factors when looking at this case. As I've been doing research on this, I found a couple more things that aren't, they, they aren't usually covered in surface level pieces about this. And I think that they're also major factors in what happened. Coming into researching this case, I thought this was a story about a woman who was made mentally ill by damaging teachings. I don't think that anymore. I think she would have had very serious mental health issues if she had never been exposed to this particular type of Christian teaching. So I want to get into the specifics of how these teachings hurt her and made her existing problems a million times worse. Which ones are we going to start with? So I think we start with the obvious the quiverful ideas and the patriarchy that was going on in this family, because I think this would not have happened if the Yates had been willing to just hold off on having another baby or maybe be done with the four that they had. I think that this tragedy might have been averted as well if Rusty had been willing to actually help more with the children that he helped to create. If any of these things had been true, then Rusty wouldn't be Rusty, though. That's just like intrinsic to him as a person. Well, I think if he hadn't gone directly against the doctor's recommendations by leaving her alone with the children, this wouldn't have happened. Because she specifically planned to do what she did when she had an hour alone with him. So clearly, 
if she hadn't been left alone with him, this wouldn't have happened. Is that like a fundy thing, though, just straight up ignoring a doctor's advice because you think you know better? I can't prove either of my theories about how this is a fundy thing, but I think that both of my theories are pretty plausible. My first theory on how this ties back to fundamentalist Christian thinking is the whole mental health isn't real concept. This is supported by Rusty saying that depressed people just need a kick in the pants. Fundamentalism also teaches a lot of twisted self-reliance. So his line of thinking might be, she's not really that sick. She just needs to stop whining and and woman up and learn independence. She's just too dependent. On the on the flip side of the same philosophy, he could have been thinking she's leaning on her own understanding and she needs to learn to rely on God more. So that's the acronym FROG, right? Yeah, fully rely on God. Or for the fundies that are too fundy for acronyms, the scripture verse, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not on thine own understanding. So that's one possibility that I see. The other possibility that I see on why Rusty would just decide not to follow the doctor's orders could be tied to his religious beliefs uh, on patriarchy. Rusty, as the man, the patriarch, the head of the household, could have been could have thought that he was being led by God and that he alone could make the best decisions for his family. So a doctor telling a man what to do with his family is contrary to him being a patriarch. Absolutely. This is actually mentioned in Heather's book, Lovingly Abused. Um, really? Yeah. Buy that book, by the way, if you haven't yet. I'm going to keep plugging it until every single listener has one. Well, Heather had a situation where her dad demanded to be a part of her medical care, even though she was 18. And he and and it would should have been up to her because he was her headship. This situation ended up getting him removed from the hospital where she was being treated. One psychiatrist mentioned that Rusty said wives are to submit to their husbands, like I mentioned earlier. And I think that that proves that he was bringing his religious beliefs into the realm of her mental illness and her psychiatric care. But patriarchy and quiverful beliefs, you may have noticed, I don't attribute directly to Michael Warnecke. He is definitely very about traditional family values. Warrenecki, as well as Rusty and Andrea Gates, were all raised Catholic and then all left Catholicism for evangelical Christianity. Warrenecki definitely held on to the patriarchal and traditional views of his family and the type of Catholicism that he was raised in. But I've read quite a few of his blog posts, and patriarchy is something that he brings up. It's something that he talks about, but it's not by far one of the main things that he focuses on. So what? So do you think Rusty was just some lazy bastard who the whole patriarchy thing was just a theological means to an end? Like that he can basically get away with not lifting a finger around the house if he goes whole hog into this whole patriarchy theology. I don't think laziness was the root of what we're talking about with Rusty. I think the laziness could be a symptom or it could be a contributing factor, but I don't think it's the root because I think the root is this black and white thinking. Husbands should work. Wives should keep home, keep the house. Couples should make babies. Wives should be able to handle the babies. Husbands should command. Wives should submit. What I'm really getting at, though, is that I don't see Warrenecki preaching the extent of patriarchy that Rusty Yates seemed to practice which makes me suspect that Rusty was being influenced by other preachers that didn't come to light during Andrea's trials the way that Warnecki did. That's just my guess, hmm. but I'm I'm pretty confident in that guess. There are two things that I do blame Warnecki and his teachings for, however. The second one I think is fairly obvious, but I want to talk about the first one because I only noticed this on my third or fourth time reading through this story. Interesting. Okay, so what are we looking at? 
So one thing that Warren Eckie leaned really hard on was minimalism. Minimalism, selflessness, and giving up one's luxuries and possessions in order to better serve God. In the LA Times article I've linked in my sources, one thing that Deborah Holmes mentioned was that before moving from the first house in Texas to the trailer in Florida, Rusty pushed Andrea into having a yard sale and selling most of her possessions. She sold wedding presents, furniture, things that she had gathered while living on her own before meeting Rusty, She only got to keep her wedding dress, sewing machine, and cookware, according to Holmes in that article. And this is the teaching that led them to having four kids in a converted school bus. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is like her sacrificing all of those things that are hers, all of those possessions. That's also her sacrificing a piece of her identity. Right. That's how it looks to me. And that's a trauma. And I think that the the point, so so the, the point that I'm getting to, I think people have postpartum mood disorders and postpartum uh, mental health issues, and that's not abnormal, and it certainly doesn't make you a bad person, but I think that all of these other traumas complicated it to the point because most people who have postpartum mental health problems do not harm their children. So I think this is one of several traumas that complicated what was already destined to happen to Andrea and caused a tragic outcome instead of a she-got-help outcome. Yeah. Mm. So this teaching led them... So so Andrea went through the trauma of losing her possessions, and then this teaching led them to live in a trailer and then downsize again to live in the bus, which had... Oh, I, I misstated it earlier. It had 350 square feet of living space. They lived that's in this... Nothing. Yeah, that, that's, that's not... That's considerably smaller than my first studio apartment yeah which was tiny they lived in this bus when their fourth child was born it turns out that one reporter claims that warinecki's teachings about being willing to give up everything to serve god about being selfish if you want to live in worldly comforts uh one reporter claims that those teachings are tied to at least four suicides in addition to andrea's murder of her children people hear his teachings and they think Well, if that's what God expects from me to give up all my possessions, then I must be a terrible bad person because I would never be willing to do that. And that makes me such a bad person that I would consider ending my life. So here's a quote from Warinecki. This is from an ABC News article. Warinecki said, Multitudes are going to hell. God doesn't give a hoot about your little, selfish, affluent, self-oriented world. That's so toxic, though. That's just... So I yeah, and I, I think that this this builds the case for why this tragedy happened. So here's another question. Andrea says in the nine one one call that she was afraid that her kids were demon possessed. Mm-hmm. This is fear mongering around children being possessed by demons, growing up wrong. Or at least to quote her, she said they were going to grow up wrong. Where does that come from? Is this the same thing as like rebellious children as we heard about, you know, with the Duggars, with the um, IBLP? The first time I read that, I thought, oh, this is the same concept of rebellious children. It's not the same concept at all. And this is oh. where I found something really interesting. And this is also where Warinecki comes back and swings around to being the villain again. So is this one of his teachings? So this next part comes directly from pamphlets, newsletters, and personal letters he sent to Andrea Yates and the family. This is tied into his beliefs about women and about homeschooling. 
I'll tell you what he was teaching, and I think you'll see how all of this came together in Andrea's mind in a way that, when taken to its logical conclusion, influenced this poor traumatized woman to kill her children. So Warnecke, like many fundamentalist preachers, focuses his teaching on the idea that the whole world is going to hell, both literally and figuratively. He travels all over the world and still does in 2021 with his family, mostly focusing on high population areas where he can stand on the street and yell at people like Times Square, the Olympic Games, major sporting events, that kind of thing. He was actually arrested more than once for disturbing the peace doing this, including once in 1981 when he berated a woman to the point of tears, telling her that she was going to hell because she was going to go buy a ticket for Cirque du Soleil. What? This is so terrifying to me. This, I I just, if some guy yelled at me on the street about how I'm going to hell, it would ruin my week. I, I cannot. I would either punch him or like go lay in bed for a few days. This would be so traumatic if that happened to me. So I'm I'm glad that he got arrested and run out of town for it. Warnecke, Where was he? Uh, I think that was in Grand Rapids. If I'm remembering oh, the article, it's linked in my sources. Just off the top of my head, I think it was Grand Rapids, Michigan. So Warnecke sent out a newsletter to his followers, who included the Yates. The newsletter is, was called The Perilous Times, where he ranted and ranted about all the same things that we've heard before from every fundy ever, how the world is getting worse and worse, the devil's becoming more deceptive, he's sneaking into every area of life, so on and so forth. And she's got these postpartum symptoms, this postpartum psychosis, and she's getting paranoid. And he's telling her, oh, the devil's everywhere. So she's seeing the devil everywhere. Yes, but it's not just about seeing the devil everywhere because she didn't kill her children only because she worried that they might be possessed. I have become convinced that this goes deeper than that. Warnecke claims, and I think he's probably telling the truth, that he never told the Yates to specifically follow his minimalist, many kids lifestyle. He never specifically instructed them to live in the bus. He never told them that their kids were specifically your children. Uh, you know, Luke and John and Mary are full of devils. And I do tend to believe him. It's another one of his teachings that I think is much more responsible for what happened. But he sold them the bus. No, Rusty contacted him about buying the bus, not the other way around. I, I do oh. believe, yeah, Rusty made that decision. Uh, Warrenecki didn't tell them to do it. So Rusty sees Warrenecki, he's like, this guy... This guy has the lifestyle I want. And I can live up to his minimalistic preaching if I do this. How do I like imitate literally everything that this guy does? Yeah. Like, so oh. I think that Warrenecke is telling the truth that he didn't specifically instruct them to live in a bus because Warrenecke isn't a cult leader like that. He's, I don't, I'm not trying to say that I like him or that he did any good at all in this situation. I'm about to tell you the evilest thing that he did, but I don't think that he was like a cult leader specifically telling Rusty Yates what to do with his family. One area where Warrenecke believes that the devil is especially active is in public schools. He heavily pressured his followers to homeschool. But that's not uncommon. Not at all. A quote from one of the leaflets that he sent to the Yates and other followers reads, the social interaction the world tells you is so important, it's exactly what you need to protect your children from. That's so insidious. It is. This is terrible. This is scary. But I don't think the requirement to homeschool was what influenced Andrea Yates to kill her children either. 
I don't think it was the idea about them being potentially full of demons. I don't think it was the bus. I don't think it was the homeschooling. All of those were factors, but I think what comes after the requirement to homeschool is actually the biggest thing that caused this tragedy. What does it say next? Warren Eckie said two different things that I think were the biggest influence. One of them was in a leaflet that was sent to all of his followers. One of them was in a personal letter to Andrea. In the leaflet that he sent to everybody, he said, bad mothers make bad children. And he said, if you have not successfully reached your children for God, by the time they are a young teenager, I saw one source that quoted him as saying 13 to 14. I saw another source that quoted him as saying 14 to 15. So I don't know which one he actually said. But if you don't reach them by that age, it is too late and your children are doomed to hell. But all her kids are under six or under seven. So the oldest was seven. Yeah. Uh, The oldest was six when the youngest was born. So for Andrea, though, but if if you're in her shoes as somebody who's got severe mental health issues, the clock is ticking. Get your children on the right path by homeschooling, teaching them about God. Do it before they're a teenager. You have to get it right by then. You have to get your shit together. You have to homeschool and you have to get started now. That Think about times when your mental health hasn't been the greatest and think about what that pressure would feel like at that time. That pressure... That ticking clock would be overwhelming. Yeah. Warrenecki doesn't teach the transactional, easy believism, once saved, always saved teachings that we've talked about over and over with the IFB. I think it's his Catholic influence from his upbringing, but I don't know for sure. He preaches that salvation is a lifelong relationship. I don't know for sure that he preached that you can lose your salvation, but I do know that he wrote personal letters to Andrea that questioned her salvation. So I think maybe he did preach that you can lose your salvation. Wow. So he is not telling Andrea the IFB line that she needs to get her kids to pray the prayer to be saved before a certain age, the prayer from Break the Script. He's not telling her that. He's telling her that being saved is a process. And if they're not far enough along in the process by a certain age, she has doomed them to hell personally by being a bad mother. But she thinks they're not on the right path and she is so worn out. She has no control over them. She's like, there is no way I'm getting this train turned around. She thinks she has already failed by not doing enough so far. And she's so mentally ill that she can't see herself getting to the point where she can do enough before her clock runs out and she dooms her children to hell. I am 100% convinced that this is why she killed her children. One of the first things that she said when the detectives asked her why she killed her children was, quote, they're not developing properly. She meant spiritually. She meant that she was convinced that they were not going to attain salvation by this specific age that Warrenecki had hammered into her head and that the devil, who Warrenecki said was everywhere, was already making his way into her children's hearts and minds. So their best chance for salvation was to die at an innocent age. The other part of this goes back to the statement that bad mothers make bad children. That's the statement from the leaflet that he mailed to everybody who followed him. But he wrote in a personal letter to Andrea, quote, God knows how wicked you are. You must accept the reality that your life is under the curse of sin and death. Oh, by everyone else's that can I I'm doing okay mental health wise. If you got that letter. I am probably, probably at the best point in my mental health that I have been maybe ever in my life. 
And if I got that letter, I would I would not be in a good place about that. If somebody said to me, Sadie, God knows how wicked you are, that would seriously upset me. Even if it's just like a Twitter troll. It's right. Like, yeah. Much less the pastor that she respected and followed and had a personal relationship with him and his family, babysat his kids. By everyone else's standards in the world, in the medical community, from our perspective, Andrea wasn't a bad mother. She was a severely ill mother who needed help. Andrea was not a bad mother any more than a cancer patient who needs a lot of care and does, spends a lot of time at the hospital and can't do as much for her children as she'd like to is a bad mother. Andrea was not bad. She had a very real, very legitimate chemical imbalance that almost killed her. But because she couldn't keep up with Warnecki and her husband's patriarchal gendered expectations on women, because her inherent wickedness and evil nature as a woman was hammered over and over by Warnecki, she saw herself as bad and therefore saw it as inevitable that her children would become bad. She has her husband saying that people with depression need a good kick in the pants. She thinks she's a failure. Exactly. She's thinking, if all people with depression need is a kick in the pants, why isn't this working for me? Why can't I overcome this? I think she thought that following what she was taught and giving up her possessions would make her good, would make her righteous, would make her okay. But when she had hormonal imbalances that gave her postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis, she felt like her plans to be good had failed. And then she wasn't able to keep up with the impossible expectations that were put on her to physically endure so many pregnancies back to back, to keep up with so many children in such a small place to homeschool. There are so few people in the entire world that would be able to keep up with that. And no one in the real world, no reasonable person would consider failing to meet those expectations to make Andrea a bad mother or a bad person or a failure. Nobody in my life, my parents and my siblings, my in-laws, my husband, if I miss a few weeks ago before I took this term off of school to work on podcast stuff and take a break, if I missed an assignment for college because I have a baby and a podcast... Nobody blamed me. Nobody shamed me for missing an assignment. I don't make A's in online school anymore because, you know, that that's, that's an unrealistic expectation. And nobody calls me a bad mother for that. Nobody would ever think to. I don't mind sharing that with our listeners because I know there's not a single person out there who's going to say that makes me a bad mom because that's ridiculous. But Andrea was held to these expectations that no one could possibly fulfill much less somebody with severe mental health problems. And she became convinced that she was inherently bad. I think this is 100% supported by things that she said during two of her four suicide attempts. On one occasion, she held a knife to her throat. Rusty was trying to stop her physically. And she said to him, please let me die. She told a psychiatrist later in very plain language that she felt like she was failing her children. She was dooming her children to hell and that it would be better for them not to have such a bad mother in their lives. And she used that language with psychiatrists on record several times relating to her prior suicide attempts. <sighs> Andrea said from prison, quote, My children weren't righteous. They stumbled because I was evil. The way I was raising them, they could never be saved. They were doomed to perish in the fires of hell. 
And this is where it hits so hard for me. Like, this is where it's just so f***ing personal for me. I don't know the experience of postpartum psychosis, but I know so deeply and so intimately the experience of thinking, why isn't this solution that I have been told is the best and the only solution fixing me? For me, it was being told that Bible reading and prayer would fix my depression. I remember thinking these exact thoughts that it sounds like Andrea Gates was thinking. If this is the answer, if reading my Bible and praying will fix any depression, and I am doing reading my Bible and praying as much as I can with all of my heart, with all of my strength, with all of my time, then there must be something terribly, horribly wrong and broken with me because I'm doing what I'm supposed to do and it's not working. So it must be me that's the problem. That's got to be so demoralizing. It is the sickest, most terrible feeling I can possibly imagine. Mm. I mean, writing and speaking has become the main thing that I do in life. I produce thousands of words a week, and I cannot possibly come up with words to describe how terrible this feeling is. But I know in my heart that many of our listeners know this feeling just like I do. So for Andrea Gates, just like it did for me, this immediately led to I must be bad. And another thing that I know so intimately and so deeply is the experience of a word or a phrase or a scripture verse getting stuck in my head and just tormenting me. And for her, I believe that phrase was bad mothers make bad children. It is like the absolute worst nightmare version of the the dental plan, Lisa needs braces, dental plan, Lisa needs braces. It's that. I know you had to get a Simpsons reference into this episode. Well, I think that's, I, I know this is a, a weird place to put a Simpsons reference, but I think it's really accurate. It's how well, those things went around in Marge's head and just kind of tormented her over and over like a, like a replay. I thought it was Homer's. Well, that, so it's, there, it's been shown several, that scene has happened several times. I think it's in the monorail episode too, with something else. Is it? Oh, a part of us all, a part of us all. Yes. Yeah. But instead of dental plan, it's I am bad. Bad mothers make bad children. Bad children are doomed to hell. I am bad. Bad mothers make bad children. Bad children are doomed to hell like a drumbeat in her head over and over and over. I like the telltale heart. I'm yes. surprised you didn't go with the Edgar Allan Poe reference. Ugh, fair. That, that, would, that, that maybe would have been better. But it's no wonder to me that faced with that Combined with a serious, severe chemical imbalance, probably several chemical imbalances that were no fault of her own, that were just a medical thing that happens to people, Andrea Yates did what she did. And to me, that's the deep part of the religious connection that many people get a piece of, but they miss the root of it. I think to those of us who have the experience of having mental health problems in a religious cult, it's a much fuller picture. So I think it's about time that we move on and talk about her two trials. Uh, so she was tried in 2001 and convicted and sentenced to 40 to life. So what happened there? So both trials, predictably and I think correctly, focused on the insanity defense. In Texas, it's not enough to prove that a person was insane at the time of a crime. The defense must prove that the person was unable to distinguish between right and wrong. So... I think that Andrea Gates was unable to distinguish between right and wrong at the time that she murdered her children. But the original jury disagreed. 
but clearly she was unable to like with regards that my children are going to hell. That's yeah. I mean, un, like unbelievable that they wouldn't think that. I don't know. So I agree with you, but the original jury didn't. And I think I may have a thought as to why, even though the jury thought she didn't qualify for the insanity defense, they did still reject the death penalty and instead sentenced her to life in prison. And this sets off my Catholic spidey senses because unlike many evangelicals, Catholics have a very hardline stance against the death penalty. This is Texas where they'll like execute anybody, you know, the mentally handicapped, minors, the innocent. So why would a Texas jury reject the death penalty on such a terrible murder case where they also reject the insanity defense? So the first theory that came to mind was maybe they stacked the jury with Catholics because the defense would want Catholics on the jury because they knew they would reject death penalty. And the prosecution would want Catholics on the jury because they knew that they would want to convict somebody who hurt a child. Mm, so they so that was my first theory um, because I've been just I've been immersed in jury selection recently because of things that are happening soon. Yeah. So that was my that was my first thought. But then I found out something that might be much more of a better reason why they rejected the death penalty. It turns out that it is it's against Texas law to inform the jury what will happen to a defendant if they are found to be insane. So to me, that sounds like perhaps the jury was under the impression that if they accepted the insanity plea, she would walk and be released where she could potentially be a danger to other people. Mm. Yates' own lawyers petitioned the judge to instruct the jury about the results that, no, she wouldn't go free. She'd go to, she'd be sentenced to a mental health facility, just not a jail. So they don't say if found guilty by reason of mental disease or defect, she will be sent to a state mental hospital? Right. That's critical information. Texas state law, man. It is what? literally against the law for the judge to tell the jury that or even allow anyone else to tell them that. Better bring out old Sparky. That's what they do in Texas, man. So it's Dust possible. Yeah, the jury thought that if they accepted the insanity plea, she would walk. So the jury felt like they couldn't do that, but also couldn't sen sentence her to death. Why is it like, do they want more guilty verdicts? What? You know, it, I wish I had the additional time to research the origin of that law. I I don't I don't this is so so strange to me. You would think that this lack of instruction about the insanity plea would be the reason that the first conviction was reversed, but it wasn't. The state determined that there needed to be a new trial because of false testimony given by an expert witness. That witness was a psychiatrist that the prosecution brought in, and it was a relatively minor detail. The psychiatrist that the prosecution brought in claimed that there was an episode of Law and Order about a similar case involving a mother who killed her children while in a psychotic state, and that the mother in the fictional Law and Order case had been found not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, and it turns out that at the time of trial, there was no such episode, although one was later made in 2004 that was similar to the Yates case. Did they even have a TV, though? Because like, it seems to me the Yates seemed like the brand of funny to say no TV because TV is from the devil and not even have one. I didn't come across any mention of the Yates having or not having a TV, although they definitely do seem like the type not to. That wasn't what the state was worried about, though. The state was worried, the court was worried, 
that the psychiatrist's mention of the episode might have influenced the jury. Specifically, the psychiatrist said that Andrea Yates probably saw the episode, and the psychiatrist implied that Andrea thought she could get away with murder by mimicking the defense that was mounted in the Law & Order episode that actually didn't exist. So that that does make sense why that could have influenced the jury. I'm seriously wondering what mental health professional would take a look at Andrea Yates and say, this lady needs prison, not a mental hospital. Like, honestly, the DA, I get if you're a DA and this is a high profile case, you know, a quintuple murder of children like infanticide. If you're a high profile DA, you got to hang them high or you're going to be out of a job come the next election. But a legitimate mental health professional, that seems like. Yeah, I agree. Fortunately, for the sake of justice or what I believe was justice, uh, there was a second trial. And I think in the second trial that a correct decision was made. So what was the second trial was when? 2006? Yes. Second trial was in 2006. And Andrea was sentenced to life in a mental health facility with the potential for parole in 40 years, I believe. She was stuck in prison for five years. Yes. Uh, During that time in prison, by the way, she was hospitalized for refusing to eat at least twice. Oh, God. This poor woman like i know i know she killed her five children but like just with the facts of this case it's impossible for me to not see her as a victim here as well i don't know like how how do you feel about that i was borderline throughout my research on seeing her as completely a victim or a much less culpable villain compared to like the number four villain behind rusty warnecki the failure of doctors that treated her But the fact that pushed me into seeing her much more as a victim actually has nothing to do with the crime. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, what's that? Every year since being sentenced to the mental health facility, Andrea is up for a review. She lives at a low security facility. She can, she has like a, almost like an apartment there. I linked an article about what her life is like there. There's not fences. Uh, She just can't leave the property, like the compound of the facility. They have a cafeteria. They have, it's it's actually very nice uh, mental health facility where she is. And every year she can apply for review and the review would give her the potential to get out if she could show that she's not a danger to anyone. And every year for 20 years, almost Andrea has opted out of the review. She does not even request to be looked at. She doesn't want to get out. So she just feels guilty. Well, she knows she's keeping other people safe by staying where she is. Mm. She has only asked ever for one thing. She asked to be allowed to go out with a group of other patients to go to church on Sundays, and she was denied that. But she has never even submitted for review to get out. And that makes me think that she's accepting responsibility and that she is choosing to keep other people safe. Well, what happened to Rusty? Because in my mind, Rusty is like 66% responsible for all of this. Did he get like civil charges, wrongful death suit? What are like, does Texas have laws on criminally negligent homicide? Rusty never saw charges or a court appearance over this. Never. Never. I mean, not for him. He, I think he test. I think he testified in Andrea's trial, but I am not 100% certain on that. But he never was charged with anything himself. He filed for divorce in 2004. I'll let you do that. Yep. uh, He then remarried in 2006, although he and his second wife divorced after having one child together. I bet she just didn't want to live in a school bus on the NASA parking lot. 
But I didn't find any concrete information about their marriage other than it happened and now it's had one kid and now it's over. I have to imagine she eventually butted heads with his patriarchal teachings and expectations. I just want to say I am so annoyed that Rusty Yates, who drove his wife to insanity, resulting in the deaths of their five children, can find another woman while I am still here on my own, sad and lonely, heating up Hormel turkey chili in the microwave and sitting on my couch by myself to watch Game of Thrones. And I haven't driven anybody to insanity or murder except for maybe my kindergarten teacher. It's it's very unfair. Oh, it's completely unfair. I am I am livid right now. But to be serious, I am 100% confident that you would not introduce your struggling wife to a fire and brimstone street preacher who would send her fear-mongering leaflets and horrible personal letters to tell her how bad she is. Like I am 100% sure that if you had a wife you would not do that. That sounds like something that I would absolutely not do one bit. Unless I was like trying to play a really elaborate prank. I don't know. But Rusty did that. And even after the highly publicized trial, some woman looked at this man who, if you haven't seen a picture of uh, Rusty Yates, he looks like if Guy Fieri was a cop. That's what this man looks like. He, he has like no neck. His, his, his head looks like a thumb. She looked at him and said, yes, this is the man I want to build my life with. I, I agree with you I, that Rusty is the main villain here. This man, Rusty Butthole Yates. I hate him. They, it's a whole combination of factors, right? So the factor, um, if she hadn't been told she was bad, this the, the death part probably wouldn't have happened. If But if Rusty hadn't left her alone, it still wouldn't have happened. So in my mind, it all still comes down to him. And then Moranecki's like the second villain and then failure of the medical system and potentially child protective systems to keep her and her family safe is a villain. And then way down the list. Huh? At least they tried. Like the medical, the the doctors, at least they tried. They were like, look, Rusty. That's true. That's why, that's why Rusty gets the number one bad man slot in my mind. They, she wouldn't have been to the point where they're like, this woman needs to be institutionalized. Or like when she was in the hospital, they're like, okay, she's in the hospital. She's good enough to go home now, but you got to watch her. And you can't get her pregnant again. I mean, mm, it's- What should here, I do? Get her pregnant again. Here's the thing. If they had said, do not let her get pregnant again, and Rusty had been like, cool, let me schedule my vasectomy, the likelihood of this happening would have gone way down. Does Rusty strike you as the type of guy to say that he has a latex allergy? I don't know. No, I don't think he does because I don't think he even needs to make a lame excuse like that to get what he wants. I think he would see himself above that. I think he would say, well, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to do what I want. Yeah. Oh, that's even but, worse somehow. Yes. That's. But, but all of this, you know, the villain ranking aside, the point that, that I really want to make is that this is just kind of what happens when you expose somebody with serious mental illness to this kind of religious views. Because I think this is more than just a religious true crime case. I think this is an example of why cult survivors and religious abuse survivors with mental health issues have such a tough time. This is the failure, a failure on Rusty's part for sure, 
But this is also the end result of patriarchy. It's the end result of male supremacy and behavior control, information control, black and white thinking. This Mm. is the end result of fear mongering about satanic possession. And this is the end result of ignoring mental health problems. So sharing on our podcast to thousands of people that I've had this same cycle of emotions of like, I am bad, I'm f***ing up, I'm a bad person, like that spiral, that's personal. That's that's a lot to share. That's a very intimate thing to share, but it doesn't feel too intimate because I am 100% convinced that many of our listeners have experienced the same thing that I have. Well, I've experienced that too, but just obviously not to the same extent, and it probably wasn't as pervasive well, not in because like of, every aspect of my life. Yeah. Well, not because of religious trauma, no. but that's a great point. This shame spiral is not limited to specifically Christian or cult thinking. This is a thing that that our whole brains like to tell us sometimes. So I want to I want to close this out by speaking to listeners who do identify with that, if I can, as well as any listeners who have had postpartum depression, anxiety, postpartum psychosis, or other mental health problems. If that's you, I I just want you to know that I I hear you. I I identify with you. I know very personally some of those struggles, and I certainly know how it feels to get into that negative cycle of, I'm a bad person, I'm a bad parent, I'm ruining everything. And and that cycle that feels like it cannot be broken, and it's just going to be a shame spiral uh, until something bad happens. What has helped me with that shame spiral is looking beyond the black and white thinking of, I am a good person or I'm a bad person, and I am either good or bad. You can just be a person. You can just be a person who is proud of the good that you've done and who regrets the bad and tries to make amends and do better. If you cannot see yourself as a good or perfect or righteous person right now, it's okay. You don't have to jump from there all the way to seeing yourself as a bad person. You can learn to just see yourself as a person that exists and to see your existence as valid and worth it. And that's what that is what has probably saved my life and really helped. That is a beautiful sentiment. Just learning to be a person because this 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 black and white thinking, it teaches us that you're either all the way good or you're all the way bad. So when you fuck up one little thing, you're like, I am all the way bad. And that's what's that's what's pulled me out of this. And what's enabled me to live a safer and happier life. So if you, our listener, have ever struggled with suicidal thoughts, or even if you're going through that right now, I want to encourage you to get the help that makes sense for you to get and to stick around. I am not going to give you some kind of boring motivational speech or self-help statement to try to convince you, because those things honestly just kind of pissed me off on my darkest days, and they didn't help much at all. What I am going to do is tell you that I know. I really, really do know how hard that is. And I'm going to tell you that I'm happy you're here. And I'm going to tell you that I personally hope that you stick around. And finally, if you're a listener, if you're going through or have gone through postpartum mental health struggles, I want you to know what I need to hear a lot, (laughs) which is that this does not make you a bad parent or a bad person. This is no more your fault than it was your fault if you had a lot of morning sickness or if, like me, you had heartburn your entire pregnancy. This isn't your fault any more than that was. This is a medical event that has no bearing on your worth as a person, no bearing on your capability as a parent. 
Get help if you need it. Don't let anyone, including yourself, shame you for getting whatever help you need, whether that's counseling or medication or help from a family member, extra support from your partner, or just ordering delivery when you cannot deal with cooking dinner. I'm going to include some starter resources for mental health help, postpartum specific mental health in my source posts, which will be free on Patreon. And I just I just want our listeners to know I I'm sharing this personal stuff because I really truly believe that I'm that most of you identify with one of the categories that I just took some time to speak to. And I really do care and I really do see you. And for a lot of those categories, I really do know how hard it is. And uh ho- hope you stick with it. Hope you're doing okay. You're speaking to my heart right now, Sadie. Um, I want to let you know that I really appreciate that. Um, well, you know, I care about you. and I know you do. And I know you. I know you very personally. And I can't know every one of our listeners as personally as I know you. But I can care about them. And I know you care about them, too. And this has been a really dark and messed up episode. But I, I wanted to end it on something really strong because that is that is just speaking from my heart as truthfully as I can. Yeah, that's that's something that I really admire about you that you always do. I'm Ugh. sending you big, big virtual hugs through the Internet if you would like uh, virtual hugs. I, You know what? I appreciate that. Or were you talking to the audience? No, I was talking, talking to, to you. everybody. No, I was oh, talking well, to you, Gavi. I, I appreciate that. Um, I'm sending virtual hugs back and I'm sending virtual hugs to everybody who is listening to this and watching. Okay, fine. I will send virtual um, hugs to our audience as well. Yeah, that was as long as they consent to virtual hugs. That was beautiful. That was very well put, Sadie. Um, uh, I I don't think there's anything that I could add to that. Uh, That was such a a, an impassioned speech. Um, Yeah, that was extremely. (laughs) That was a lot. It was from the heart. It was from the heart, and that's how you got to do it. You always got to speak from the heart. Is there anything else that we want to talk about before we got to wrap up? Nope, that was it. Okay, well, I just said literally everything I could possibly say. I think. Yeah, this this woman, Andrea Yates, I mean, I it's going to be impossible for me to not see her as a victim here. I mean, imagine I getting am, married to this guy. I am this... really glad she ended up where she did. That's what yeah. I want to say. I think that that justice has been done. She cannot harm anybody else, but she will be getting help for the rest of her life. Not living in not not being in prison where she's not she's not going to get any better. Yeah. You know, she's she it doesn't keep the world any safer to have her in prison versus a mental health facility. And I'm I'm trying to imagine like it's unimaginable the like where she was mentally when she committed that horrible act. <laughs> like it's it's impossible for me to comprehend like the things that were going through her head. I, well, I that's, like I that's the thing. Like yeah, I have never had postpartum psychosis, but I have had depression. I have had mental health problems, and I have had religious trauma. So I know the extent to which depression plus religious trauma affected me. Mm. So I can imagine and extrapolate, we'll add one more thing, add in postpartum psychosis, and then add in one more thing because she was living in a bus, and then add in one more thing because her husband was a d- And then, so you, it, it's a it's a cascade effect. And that's what I really see here. And you were already in rough shape without all those extra things. And man, right. Two of those things almost did me in. And she's got all of these additional factors. Five, six extra. Man. Yeah. No wonder. Man, Rusty. This guy, Rusty, he's the worst. We hate Rusty. I hate Rusty almost as much as I hate David Hiles. Oh, wow. At this point. That's how much. That's a big like, one. 
I mean, David Hiles killed a child in my mind. Allegedly. 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 In my mind, Rusty killed five. That is okay. That is very true. That's an excellent point. I mean, David Hiles got off scot-free. Um, That's true. Rusty also got off scot-free. Man, the, the real villains, they never face punishment, man. They never do. Yeah. But I am thankful. I am thankful that at least I perceive that Andrea got justice. Rusty didn't get justice. Yeah. Anyway, if you like this show, uh, what you can do is you can follow us on uh, whatever app that you're using to listen to it. Hit that subscribe button. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, recommend it to your friends, your family. Join our Facebook group. That's going to be facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. Join our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. You can go and join our Patreon for extended and uncensored uh, episodes. Uh, that's going to be patreon.com slash uh, leaving Eden podcast. Uh, and you can follow the podcast on Facebook, Instagram at leaving Eden podcast on Twitter at leaving Eden pod. Sadie, do you want to plug your social media? Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter music. You can follow me on Twitter at hell. Yeah, Sadie. You can follow me on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter one. And you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and clubhouse at G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. Thank you so much uh, for tuning in. Uh, hope you guys have a good day. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.